This is a recording from a Sunday meeting of the BC Humanist Association in Vancouver. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the BCHA or its board of directors. To learn more about humanism and to support our work, visit bchumanist.ca and make sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and be sure to subscribe to the BC Humanist Podcast. Now today, we're very honored to welcome Gary Bosla. Gary's a longtime humanist. He's been involved in Humanist Perspectives magazine. He's been on the board of numerous humanist organizations. He's been involved in the Victoria Secular Humanist Association, where he lives now. And he's one of our honorary members for his uh, writing and work on secular humanism. Today, we're inviting him here today to talk about the assisted dying movement and the right to die. So. Gary. Thanks, Ian. I've, uh, last uh, several years, I've become interested in writing about the law. I, uh, I started in 2004, actually, when I attended the trial of Evelyn Martins. I was writing an article for Humanist Perspectives magazine. Most, do you, most, any of you or all of you remember Evelyn? She was prosecuted in 2004, two counts of assisted suicide. Oh, not guilty. But it was a fascinating trial and sort of a landmark trial in Canada and uh, helped uh, soften attitudes towards assisted death. Um, but I, I became interested particularly in when the law, when the justice system conflicts with actual justice. And I saw that, I saw that starkly in the um, Martin's case uh, where she's being prosecuted by, under the law of banning assisted suicide. And she's basically being prosecuted for acts of kindness, human kindness. And uh, then I became interested in the Latimer case and uh, wrote a book on that, which is a copy of it, which is here if you want to have a look at it. Um, and that was about how the, law, the legal system really went wrong and failed to find a way of helping basically an act of, uh, another act of kindness. Um, so I wrote that book, and then I, then I became interested in an issue called jury nullification, which is a tool for social justice, which is not much understood and is really suppressed in Canada. So I wrote about that. I talked about that here for some of you. It might have been that thought. But that was uh, about how the law, unjust laws can be attacked by ordinary citizens, can be opposed by ordinary citizens sitting on a jury. More recently, uh, what I, a book I've written that just came out in April, it's called The Right to Die. And it's about how, to, you know, the Right to Die movement is all about changing legislation, legislation that, they, that uh, prohibited assisted, assisted death of any kind. So, do uh, this, I've got a sense, you know, the law is not a fixed, immutable thing handed down on tablets from the heavens. Um, the laws are created by generally well-meaning humans. Designed, the laws are designed to seek fairness and justice, but sometimes it falls short of that. I want to quote Art Smith, a lawyer, in the 1941 case of Dorothy and Victor Ramberg. You probably, most people haven't heard of it, but I'm going to talk about the case. It's a very interesting case. But Art Smith said in 1941, the lawyer, that in 1832, People were hanged in England for stealing sheep. 
This is in a case, the Rambergs were charged with murder of their son. And so Art Smith, leading into his defense, talked about this. He said, people are still hanged for stealing sheep. They were hanged in 1835 for stealing a letter, in 1837 for forgery and burglary, and even as late as 1861 for robbery with violence. In 1869, I owed you $10. I could be imprisoned until I paid you. And now we sit in this courtroom trying a man and his wife for mercifully killing a suffering, dying child in this so-called civilized age. We have not reached perfection in law by any means. Now, for many Canadians, one of those areas of imperfection in the law was the death penalty. Before uh, 1976, when it was abolished, 710 civilians in Canada were, were, were executed, mostly by hanging. This was unfair for a variety of reasons. Unjust, unfair because of inequities in the legal defense system, unjust because of possible mistakes. Most, or at least many people, strongly opposed it, and, uh, and it was abolished. But it was replaced by a problematic clause um, that's why mandatory minimum penalties uh, for anybody uh, convicted of murder. The law still falls short of perfection because it, now there's no judicial discretion in the length of the sentence for anybody charged with murder. In most cases, that's not problematic, but it was in Latimer's case where he was found that because he was charged with found guilty of murder, he uh, spent, had to spend 10 years in prison. This is the mandatory minimum penalty. So even that death issue, or the murder issue, has not been properly resolved in Canada. Now, the story of the right to die movement in Canada is a similar one. It's a struggle to seek fairness and justice uh, regarding assisted death and a legal system that's less than perfect. For many years, the law has absolutely prohibited assisted death, even though condoned withdrawing treatment, thought by many to be morally equivalent to, to assisted death. And the law accepted hastening of death through application of pain medications, but absolutely prohibited assisted, assisted death. And like the fight, fight to abolish capital punishment, the struggle is about something larger than the, than the particular issue itself. It's about the sort of society we want to have. We want one where our laws uh, arise from superstition and irrational and exaggerated fears, often fed by political expediency, or do, do we want our laws to come from reason and human compassion? Now, as you will see in some of the examples I'll talk about, when faced with real such choices, Canadians almost always react with reason and compassion, even when the law fails to do so. I mentioned the Ramberg case earlier on. I want to tell you a bit about that for a variety of reasons. December 1941 is remembered. Most of you know what that's remembered for, mostly? Uh, uh, oh, oh, yeah. Harbor. Oh, Harbor. <laughs> Harbor, that's right. You know, that was a world-changing event. Uh, but for the Rambergs in that same month, much of that, the uh, month is much more significant for an entirely different reason, a personal reason. They went to trial for the murder of their infant son, Christopher, and they faced the death penalty in December 1941. The Rambergs lived in Kioma, which is 32 miles from Calgary. Victor's uh, father worked in the Kioma wheat pool. The boy, Christopher, was the apple of his parents' eyes. But in January 1941, just before his second birthday, 
they could tell something was wrong. There was an odd reflection in the boy's right eye, and he was losing his bearings as he, as he played. The doctor found a malignant tumor in his right eye. It had already destroyed, the tumor had already destroyed the vision in that eye, and an operation was scheduled immediately to remove it. When the boy was sedated, the doctor discovered yet another tumor in his left eye, and they came to the conclusion that an operation would be futile. It was really a death sentence. Terrible blow to the parents. By October, the tumor had grown considerably, destroying both eyeballs and pressing against his brain. He was in extreme pain, vomiting, trying as his body tried to eliminate this uh, source of his uh, suffering. He's crying and screaming in pain constantly. His mother said it was like a, a knife passing through her body. The doctor said the situation was hopeless. It could be weeks or months before the boy died. He was going to die, no doubt about that. But no one knew when. when. Dorothy later said, no one could help him but his mommy and daddy. So we took it into our own hands. They used carbon monoxide to end the boy's life, as just as Latimer did 50 years later. The Rambergs in this process almost died themselves, underestimating the potency of the gas. They went to trial shortly afterwards. In those days, trials were much shorter affairs than they are now. The Martin's trial I mentioned earlier was well over a month. This one was just two days, December 10th and December 11th, 1941. Art Smith, the lawyer I mentioned earlier, talking about the law and the law being mutable, later became a highly respected politician, said at trial, let us begin a new era in which decent people like the Rambergs will not be classed with murderers and cutthroats because they have been merciful, because they loved a child and could not bear to have him suffer. You are trying the first uh, case of its kind in Canada. It's in your power to help in trying to bring about a change. This child was in his last illness. He was dying. His parents took the kindest means to relieve terrific suffering. Can you adjudge them guilty of murder? Would you have them hanged by the neck until dead? In the name of all that is decent, let us begin a new era. But would the Rambergs be shown mercy for their merciful act? Would decency prevail, or would the law? There is no disputing the Rambergs had intentionally killed their child. This is first-degree murder. They would be hanged if guilty. Smith's defense was not to quibble about what the Rambergs had done, but said to question applying the law, the letter of the law, in such a case. The law is about seeking justice. There would be no justice in hanging the Rambergs. But at this point, only the jury, jury's verdict could save them. But they had done something that's classified as murder, and everyone knew that. Smith made it clear to the jury that they need not follow the law. This is the principle of jury independence that I mentioned in my second book about uh, jury nullification. Principle of jury independence, that jury, jury nullification means the jury can come to a verdict of not guilty even if a person is clearly technically guilty. This was uh, most famous case in Canada was the uh, Morgenthaler case where he admitted to carrying out abortions contrary to the law, but four successive juries refused to convict him, even though he was guilty. Now, the law is not some unchallengeable beacon of truth and justice. 
as quoted earlier, Smith spoke of how the law is less than perfect and changes over time. But what would this jury do? What would the Ramberg jury do? No one knew. The jury went out at 1 p.m. on December the 11th, the second day of the trial. The judge naturally instructed the sheriff to provide the jury with lunch. Friends gathered around the Rambergs to comfort them. But lunch was not to be had. Within minutes, the jury asked to return to the courtroom. At 1 p.m., there was this exchange. Have you reached a verdict, the court clerk asked. Yes, the foreman answered. Not guilty, both of them. Now, why, why tell this old story? Well, for one thing, it's interesting, not well known. It was the beginning of Canada's long struggle with uh, the legalities of euthanasia. It's an illustration also of the importance of jury nullification. Jury, uh, they would have hanged if the jury hadn't, uh, because they were technically guilty, the jury hadn't refused to follow the law. It's the beginning of a long history of attempts of Canadians to mitigate a bad law and show mercy to the merciful, but the law won't, won't do so. There are intense human dramas around each of these stories. They help put a human face on these issues. They're not just abstract and theoretical. These are real people and real tragedies. A few more points there you might, you might be interested in about the Ramberg trial. Art Smith was elected as a conservative MP from 1945 to 1951. He became ill in 51 and retired. He died a few months after resigning from office. It's practice of Parliament at that time, federal Parliament, to uh, honor any sitting MPs who died while, while, while serving, not, not people who had since retired. But in Smith's case, they unanimously made an exception. Tribute was paid by Liberal uh, uh, Prime Minister Louis Saint Laurent, a moving tribute. And the uh, editorial in the Calgary Herald about Smith said, it seemed there wasn't anybody in Calgary who Art Smith didn't know and who didn't like Art Smith. It was what made him the great man he was, almost incredibly wide, an almost incredibly wide and intimate contact with people, plus the brilliant and penetrating mind which enabled him to bring humanity into the House of Commons. In the same way some years before, he brought humanity to trial of the Rambergs. A couple of comments about the, the Ramberg family itself. Uh, Dorothy, losing a child is the most devastating thing that can happen. She never recovered from her son's death. She felt uh, responsible, and was sadly, unfortunately told by someone, probably a doctor, that uh, she had probably carried a genetic defect which caused the illness in her child. Almost certainly untrue, and they, how would they know that? This casual re remark drastically affected Dorothy's subsequent life. She determined not to get pregnant again. This affected her marriage. She became depressed and alcoholic. In February, February 1961, at the age of 47, she took her own life using the same means. She took the life of the son of carbon monoxide. Some people find a way to manage with this kind of tragedy, and others, uh, others don't. Victor fared somewhat better. I wrote in my book, Victor was not so affected. He tried to put the matter behind him. He married again, but he did keep for a while a collection of framed photographs of the boy. 
Each had a letter sealed behind photos that contained a message from Dorothy to her son. One called him her dear little lamb. And she said she was sorry she had not died with him. But eventually Victor threw all these reminders away, trying to find a way to cope with the, the tragedy. There are many other stories. They all involve human pathos and drama. In most part, a search for justice and compassion, often fighting against the law to do so. I want to tell you another story that, that I find compelling. A story that sort of looks, covers all of the, or many of the issues that arise in a debate about assisted death. This is a couple named Jean and Cecil Brush. The story occurred in 1994 in Stony Creek, Ontario. Stony Creek is now a suburb of Hamilton. Jean and Cecil have been married happily for 58 years. Cecil developed uh, health problems by 1994, by the age of 81. He was in bad shape. He had uh, beginning Alzheimer's and he'd lost most of his eyesight and he was severely depressed. Repeatedly said over a long period of time that he wanted to die. Finally, Jean gave them, what were they to do? You know, they didn't know how to, really what to do, except they uh, wanted to, were ready to die. Jean finally gave them both large doses of sleeping pills. They fell unconscious, but were found alive and uh, woke up in hospital. Cecil subsequently went to a nursing home, still not wanting to live. One day, Jean picked him up, ostensibly taking lunch, but instead took him home. She spread blankets on the floor, and they lay down together, hand in hand. She stabbed him several times in the stomach, and then did the same thing to herself. They were discovered by their daughter somewhat, somewhat later, lying in blood, holding hands. He died from this. She survived and was charged with manslaughter. Suicide note I always found very moving that uh, Jean wrote. It ceases in my situation is getting worse day by day and will not get better. Cease being blind and with Alzheimer's disease. It's like being in a nightmarish hell. We have lived our lifetime and it must end before we become vegetables. Medical profession and governments won't do anything to use euthanasia or mercy killing, but suffering elderly people out of the torture and agony that they are in. Do the medical profession and governments care what effect this has on the families? It doesn't seem like it. Joan, that's their daughter, Joan's life being disrupted and will get worse for her. And that sacrifice shouldn't be asked to anyone. Families have their own lives to consider. Life for the young must go on. C says he was young, vibrant, full of life, is no more. He is a shell, dead but not buried because he still breathes. Darling Joe, no matter how it happens, it's going to be a shock. I can't let Dad suffer anymore. I know I have to go too. Now, Dorothy could have been charged, of course, with first-degree murder, because it was technically first-degree murder. But in this general story of compassion, concern, and mercy that Canadians have in all of the, almost all of these cases, uh, the prosecutor charged her only with manslaughter. And that was critical, because had she been charged with murder, it was a 10-year minimum, even for second-degree murder. But manslaughter is flex more flexible in sentencing. So the compassionate prosecutor just charged her with manslaughter. And she had a compassionate judge who gave her a suspended sentence. 
18 months probation. And it's interesting what the judge wrote about this case. He said, there's no doubt in my mind and what has been presented to me that imposing the most lenient sentence possible would serve the ends of justice and that Mrs. Brush remaining in the community would not endanger the safety of the community. I will not compound this tragedy by incarcerating Jean Brush. Again, Canadians found a way to attain some level of justice in spite of too inflexible law. That happened to some extent in most Canadian cases. That's not to say that we don't need a change in the law. There's much pain and heartache in all of these stories because of the law. In one case, there was a spectacular failure of the system to find any form of justice in the case of Latimer. I might mention a bit of both. But in general, the cases show a real distaste for applying full force of the law. Most Canadians did not want the law to punish acts of mercy. And mercy, I mentioned Latimer cases, that's where mercy failed entirely. I met with him while he was in prison at Wheelingham Prison near Victoria. I talked to him many times in preparation for writing the book. All the possibilities for mercy in his case failed. He had a vindictive prosecutor that charged him with murder that resulted in a mandatory minimum penalty of 10 years in prison. And a complicated business I won't go into now, but the possibility of jury nullification, which was real in his trial, was blocked because of an earlier Supreme Court ruling. The cruelty of his treatment through this was exacerbated by a vindictive solicitor general, Lawrence McCauley, who insisted or passed an edict at the time Latimer was about to go to prison in 2000. McCauley came up with this idea that anybody charged with murder should have to go into a high security prison. Latimer was sent to a high security prison initially, which he would not have done otherwise. And his life was really in danger there. And Latimer was also further punished by a strangely vindictive parole board, which I also write about extensively in the book, Astonishingly Vindictive, Unfair Parole Board. So every possibility for mercy in Latimer's case failed. Just highlighting the need for more permissive laws on assisted death. All of these cases did that, and all these cases showed Canadian appetite for mercy, except the Latimer case. Although many, many people, even though everything in the legal system failed him, there are many, many people who are highly sympathetic with him. He told me he got, every Christmas, he got an envelope with a $1,000 bill in it anonymously from somebody. He got much money donated to cover his legal costs. Now one of the most dramatic and far-reaching attempts to cope with the law of banning assisted death was carried out by a man called John Hofsess. Have any of you heard of him? Yeah, I'm right. Sue's heard of him. I got to know him in early 2015 and many meetings over the subsequent year. Hofsess was a really interesting character. In his younger days, he was a writer and a film critic. Film critic for McLean's magazine for quite a few years. And he was at McMaster University in the 60s, and he became quite highly regarded as an avant-garde filmmaker. And he worked with various people, including Ivan Reitman and Danny Goldberg, who subsequently went on to Hollywood to great fame and fortune. Reitman produced Ghostbusters, among many other things. 
I asked John why he didn't get in on some of this. Is he, John was actually the brains behind the film, made it and mastered. He wrote and directed them. Brightman and Goldman produced them. The hostage was the brains behind them. I said, well, how come they got all this fame and fortune? He said, well, they were businessmen. I wasn't. He didn't uh, want to or know how to take advantage of the opportunity. Now, uh, Hostess moved to Victoria in, uh, when was it, 90s, I think. Um, and he became very fast interested in, the, in uh, end of life issues. His friend, uh, one of his friends was Claude Jutra, the film, Quebec film director. And uh, Jutra had early Alzheimer's in his 50s. He jumped off, uh, I think, the Champlain Bridge in Montreal into the icy water, winter water, killed himself. Officer said how terrifying that must have been for Jutra because he was very much afraid of heights, but for some reason felt he had to do this before he became too incapacitated. Officer thought there must be a better way of dealing with these situations. He also, while he was living in Victoria, was really struck and moved by the case of an elderly couple who decided they, they couldn't live any longer. He jumped out of their 14th floor apartment to their death. And Hostess was very touched and upset by that and thought there must be a better way for these people. Hostess actually brought the Sue Rodriguez case forward. I assume you all know about the Rodriguez case. Maybe we could spend hours talking about that case, but I won't. <laughs> but he was the one who initiated that case and brought it forward and it came to the Supreme Court. And that was the first test of the real legal test of the law banning suicide. And it was lost. The Supreme Court, by voted five to four, voted to uphold the bad law. And after that case was lost, that was 1993, there was a special Senate committee on euthanasia and assisted suicide, reported in 1995, and it offered nothing whatsoever, hardly anything constructive, offered no help. The Hofstadt became very discouraged about the legal system. And sort of gave up on trying to change the law. I thought it was hopeless. Because of what happened to Sue and what happened to uh, in the Senate committee. Um, he began attending deaths with his assistant, Evelyn Martins, as a member, as head of the Right to Die Society. At our first meeting I had with him in January of 2015, uh, I asked him what he and his assistant had actually done with their clients. He said, well, we were not there to read them the 23rd Psalm. I got the message. He had decided that the best way he could help people who wanted to die was to set up a euthanasia service available to any member of the Right to Die Society or any other similar group. And he, uh, Hopsess and Martins, carried out acts of euthanasia for their clients. This, of course, is highly illegal. This is not just a suicide. This was murder, technically. Uh, they were actually carrying out the act. They weren't having the person carry out the final act themselves, which would be suicide. This is where they carried out the acts. They did this because uh, Hofstess claimed some good reason that most people faced with the situation don't really care about the niceties of doing it themselves. They want somebody to do it for them. In the uh, Netherlands, where both options are available to clients, uh, I think 23 or 24 choose euthanasia over assisted suicide. So they performed acts of euthanasia. They carried out at least nine of these operations, including 
death of the famous Canadian poet Al Pretty in April of 2000. The press reported uh, Pretty had died of natural causes. And that was thought to be the case until March of this year when Haas has published a detailed story about Pretty's death in Toronto Life magazine. Also, Human Perspectives uh, in the same month published the story. Why did he publish it then after so many years? He'd been wanting to tell the story, but feared bad publicity and prosecution. Could be prosecuted for murder. But by 2015, he had various health problems. He was 77 by this time, and he had been thinking himself about going to Switzerland, which we know was a euphemism for going to get assisted death. So Hofstadt decided he was going to combine these two things. He, he actually went to Switzerland, died at the end of February, and scheduled his story to come out the next month in Toronto Life magazine so that uh, he wouldn't be here to suffer any of the consequences. It's a much longer story, which I became quite involved in a number of ways I won't, I won't try to get into now. He in the end wanted me to go with him to Switzerland, but for various reasons I did not. I mentioned Evelyn Martins a few times. She was Hofstadt's assistant. Hofstadt had a detailed list of protocols designed to protect them from being caught by the police. Um, safeguards. Uh, Evelyn had a split up with Hofstadt for reasons I've never been able to really find out what, what happened. But she started operating on her own and with her friend Brenda Hearn. Started attending deaths herself. And uh, she was a bit careless about the protocols. For one thing, at one of the places, deaths she attended, she left her business card, which the police found, and with other evidence that, that happened. So she, uh, she was caught attending, because of this, caught attending two, two deaths and arrested in 2002. And then she went to trial in 2004, the trial I attended. I became very sympathetic with her. Whatever exactly she had done, I didn't know. It became clear during the trial that she was a very kind person, helping desperate people to get help nowhere else. I came to believe that she was motivated, whatever she'd been doing, motivated by human kindness and mercy, and I rooted for her in the trial. In the end, though, we know now, in fact, she was guilty of murder, not just assisted suicide, according to the law. The court could not prove it. The prosecution could not prove it. The judge specified in that trial that uh, she had to take some active part in the procedure, not just be there or offer advice, but some physical involvement in the death. And they couldn't prove that. Um, so she was found not guilty. The great relief of many of her supporters, including myself, who were there. But the euthanasia service through this process, as soon as uh, Evelyn was arrested, it collapsed. And the uh, process more or less disappeared for some time. For me, he served 11 years later when you got in touch with each other. Now, these are some of the best-known cases that brought assisted death to public attention in Canada, especially Latimer, Rodriguez, Hofstadt, and Martins. And finally, 2010, as you probably all know, the British Columbia Civil Liberties Association launched a landmark case on behalf of a number of plaintiffs, including the family of Kay Carter. The case became known as Carter versus Canada. The lead lawyer was the constitutional, wonderful constitutional lawyer, Joe Harvey. This uh, case led to a landmark ruling by the BC Supreme Court under Justice Lynn Smith. 
She did the truly heavy lifting in this whole case. She did a thorough and incisive analysis of over 1,400 provisions, which I've been through, analyzed and put to rest every possible objection one could have to assisted death. Powerful, carefully worded, carefully thought out arguments. It's a wonderful piece of work, landmark piece of work in Canadian jurisprudence. Now, her decision was initially overturned by the BC Appeal Court, not because of the validity of her case, but because the initial ruling supporting the assisted death clause in the Rodriguez case had been made by the Supreme Court, the highest court in the land. And the Appeal Court said, if it's going to be overturned, it has to be done also by the highest court. So it went to the Supreme Court of Canada. And then in February of 2015, the Supreme Court of Canada unanimously upheld the ruling. Great cause of celebration for many, many of us who've been interested in this issue over the years, concerned about it. Then, however, the politicians entered the picture. The legislature was given a four-year month, a year to change the legislation, or write new legislation, and then a four-month extension. Now, we had initially, we had severe concerns about the fact that we had at the time, when we first came down, we had a conservative government, and we thought somehow they're going to try to subvert this bill and not, they were highly opposed, many of the conservatives, they're strongly opposed to this ruling. They were challenging it on the grounds that the Supreme Court had no business doing this, and on religious grounds and all kinds of grounds. So we were concerned about what the conservatives would do, but then, of course, there was an election, the Liberals got in, we thought, okay, this is a different game now. We were very optimistic. Then the proposed Bill C-14 came down. It was not bad in some respects. They recognized equivalence between assisted death, euthanasia, and assisted suicide. They made no distinction between the two. No different if you push the needle, plunger on the needle to end your life, or a doctor does it. Under your direction, it makes no difference ethically, argued by many people, witnesses. So the Bill C-14 recognized that. That was a very positive thing. Not trying to say, well, you've got to do the final act yourself. Most people don't want to do. But the bill did not begin to address, for one thing, what we do with grievously ill children. But that is a complex argument, probably best left for another time. Something I believe should be addressed at some point. Christopher Ramberg and Tracy Latimer deserve it. But at this point, it was probably too difficult an issue to tackle. But in the legislation, that sort of thing wasn't addressed by the Supreme Court. But there was one big limitation that is inexcusable, and in my view, unsustainable. The Supreme Court of Canada unanimously agreed that assisted death should be available, I'm quoting here, competent adults who have a grievous and irremediable medical condition that causes them enduring and intolerable suffering. We've all heard that phrase. Competent adults, so and so and so and so. It doesn't say 
some such competent adults, says competent adults, not some subgroup arbitrarily determined by politicians, but competent adults. The Liberals, as you know, most of you know, produced Bill C-14 led by Justice Minister Jody Wilson-Raybould. They placed a very large limitation on eligibility that the Supreme Court did not suggest or condone. They said only, so only, only people eligible are those for whom death is, in quotes, reasonably foreseeable. This would disqualify many, depending on how you define reasonably foreseeable, and it's not clear. But it could uh, disqualify even people like Sue Rodriguez with ALS, who died of ALS, but not at a, a specific antidote. She could have lived on conceivably for years, and presumably, would that be reasonably foreseeable or not? Um, Kay Carter, who uh, was one of the lead plaintiffs, lead plaintiff really, in the uh, in the BC Supreme Court case, had spinal stenosis, which was calling her, causing her terrible suffering, and uh, she went to Switzerland to die with the help of her family. But she presumably would not be helped by this legislation, and she was the central case, you know, in the in the. Supreme Court and the BC and the Supreme Court of Canada's judgment, she would not even be helped because her death was not, in any real sense, reasonably foreseeable. Only in the sense that all of our lives are reasonably foreseeable, at the end of all of our lives. But uh, it must mean something more than that. I looked at the cases, the study looked at in my book, and decided probably at least half the cases uh, would not have been helped because of that reasonably foreseeable cause. This clause, you see, disqualifies the people who need help the most, ones who have long-term suffering in front of them. If you're going to die in two days anyway, your death is uh, quite foreseeable, then it would be nicer if you get assistance in death, but it's only going to be two days of suffering. If somebody with other kinds of ailments is months or years of suffering that uh, they're going to have to go through with no relief from this legislation. This, uh, because of the Supreme Court, ruling, this restriction, it just seems to me an unaccountable error. As they say in tennis, it's an unforced error. It's not caused by an opponent's good play, but made all on one's own. It did not take any political risk, in my view, whatsoever, to make the decision mirroring the Supreme Court's recommendation. It was handed to them by the Supreme Court. All they had to do was comply with what had been determined to be constitutional by the Supreme Court. I testified in May in Ottawa at a hearing of the House of Commons Standing Committee on Justice and Human Rights, focusing on this one big problem at C-14. Many other people did as well. Um, There's also the central issue in the Senate's reluctance to pass the bill. You remember they opposed the bill, but uh, in the end uh, gave in its order because they felt it wasn't their role as an unelected body to uh, make the final decision, but they strongly opposed the bill as it read. <coughs> the Liberals were unshakable in this. They passed the bill, disqualifying many people from uh, assistance and death, people most, often people most needed. And importantly, they violated the Charter. Here, that because of restricting the uh, um, people eligible, it's a clear violation of the intention of the Charter. Constitutional challenge is already underway. Many of you probably know about this, led by the BC Civil Liberties Association. And almost certainly the Liberals are going to lose this. 
great constitutional lawyers, uh, Peter Hogg and Joe Harvey, both have uh, argued strongly that you know, it's a clear violation of the Constitution. Why did the Liberals do this? I don't know. It's hard to say. I expect very bad advice. Other, do they have good arguments? They don't have good arguments. I looked at them. Some of them are very puzzling arguments. I'm trying, trying to uh, deduce what some of them mean. But they seem unpersuasive. And uh, so there's a beginning now of a long, expensive court battle that the Liberals, I think, almost certainly will lose. And many more people will suffer in the meantime. I feel like voices of the past are speaking to us about this legislation. You know, I can hear the Rambergs, Dorothy and Victor, the Hottie screams of young Christopher, Tracy Latimer, Jean and Cecil Brush, Sue Rodriguez, John Hofstess, Evelyn Martins, many others. Do not let their pain and sacrifices go unheeded, they say. Give help and relief to those in desperate need. Treat them with fairness, justice, and mercy. This new legislation is not good enough. As Art Smith said back in 1941, we have not yet reached perfection in law by any means, nor have we yet. Thank you.